Hey friends, this is Holly Goodman, and you're listening to Isaac's Autism Wild podcast, where we focus on topics related to raising loved ones touched by autism and its impact on relationships and family. I'll be sharing some of my personal parenting experiences, raising my son Isaac, who passed away in 2007, as well as an entirely different parenting experience as I now raise my son Caleb, who never ceases to blow my mind with his beautiful autism perspectives. So grab a drink and join me as I interview this week's group of exceptional autism parents. Thank you guys for joining me. We are recording Isaac's Autism Wild podcast. The topic that we are um, hashing out this week, I guess, if you will, is wandering and eloping when it comes to our loved ones that are touched by special needs. Um, For this portion of the podcast, I have two different autism um, sets of parents that are going to share with us uh, a story. uh, um, They're going to share with us about their child who... Um, it has been known to wander or elope from home. And so um, I'm going to start with, I have, um, I have Maria and Mike Jennings or, or Jennings Maynard, because I've got two sets of Maria. So when you're listening to this podcast, we have two Maria's different kiddos. And then, um, so Mike and Maria are going to share uh, their story about Wyatt, because you guys just had a situation where he went missing, um, which involved kind of a, a neighborhood search, if you will. Is that correct? Correct. All right. Um, it was uh, a week ago this past Saturday, so about 10, 11 days ago, uh, we got up on a Saturday morning uh, kind of late. It was a casual morning, uh, about 9 o'clock, and Maria was on the, in front of the house vacuuming the living room floor, and I was in the back, <clears throat> by the back door in the kitchen uh, getting some breakfast going. And Wyatt uh, trotted on out of that back door into the backyard like he had a hundred thousand times before and uh i didn't think much of it but uh i have been rebuilding his swing he uh has a swing that extends from a post and he become too big and too wild on it and he was breaking it so i had a i had to modify it and beef it up some and so his swing was down so when he went out in the backyard, I, I didn't think anything of it. But three or four minutes later, I get to thinking now his swing is down. I wonder what he's doing because it was quiet back there. So I stepped in the backyard and he's gone. There's nobody back there. It's an empty backyard. So I thought, well, maybe he uh, turned uh, turned back around, went back in the house because he does that a lot. He moves all over the place all the time. So I went back in the house. I looked around, didn't find him. I Maria was still on the vacuum cleaner. I. I called her and said, have you seen Wyatt? She said, no, I haven't. And uh, she said, I've been vacuuming. So um, look around a little bit more, go down the basement, ask Hunter, and he's just nowhere. So it's at that point, you know, and this all transpires in a matter of a couple minutes, you know, and uh, we realize he's gone. And I assumed that he went over the back gate. We have a six-foot fence all around our backyard. Very difficult, for, almost impossible for him to get over. But the gate where I parked my car in the carport is only was only four feet tall. So he was big enough to throw his leg up over that and be gone. So at that moment, I got in the car and drove immediately to Holmes Elementary School. It's a couple blocks from our house where we've gone on many walks thinking he might be at the playground over there. I drove over there. He was not there and then i uh, drove around the couple blocks around the house and no sign of him i rush home and call 911 at that point and talk to dispatcher and uh give her the pertinent details and i also told her that 
Well, she asked, is, is there a place that you or you guys go together where he might go? I said, well, the only thing I can think of is the Holmes Elementary School playground. Well, so I hung up. Then Maria gets in the car and uh, starts driving around the neighborhood. And I'm at the house with Hunter, Wyatt's older brother. And uh, and we were just about ready to go out looking, Hunter and I on foot. And uh, I go, we get a call. And it's... Uh, it's uh, dispatch, and uh, he tells me that uh, they think they found him. He's at Holmes Elementary School, and uh, and go on over there and get him. So I was uh, excited and happy and relieved at that point. Now this is probably maybe you know this might have been twenty to thirty minutes after I first realized he was missing. So it's a very short period of time, and it was quite remarkable he was found so quickly. Uh, I go over to the school, and uh, there are three police cars and uh, a gym teacher at uh, Holmes Elementary School who I recognized from Hunter. Hunter went to Holmes. White went to Audubon. But uh, I recognized the gym teacher and then the, the main office administrator, Denise. Well, apparently it was a Saturday morning, but Denise uh, was driving, I'm assuming driving to the school, and she saw Wyatt out and about without any pants on, no shoes. He left the house with just a T-shirt and a diaper on. And uh, she said, well, I, he looks familiar. So she pulled over, and uh, where she found him was surprising. She didn't find him at the school. She found him uh, about seven, eight blocks east of our house, right on the ash maple couplet and boom, where there's a coffee shack. So he wasn't supposed to go that way. He decided he wanted to go someplace new. Well, that was kind of scary, but she, that's where she saw him. She got him to get into the car, and she drove him to the school, knowing that it was Hunter's brother, because I had been in the office many, many times, and she's a real alert woman, very good at what she does and on top of everything, and she had seen him numerous times when I'd go pick Hunter up at the office or drop something off for Hunter. So she got him to the school, and uh, they began initially to try to find Hunter's uh, address and phone number. So they contacted me directly. Well, just about that time, the police officer, one of the three that were out cruising the neighborhood, was stopped by the checkout the school playground. She saw Wyatt with uh, the two ladies out there, and she pulled over and asked him and uh, discovered that this was the boy. And then that's when the police officer contacted dispatch, dispatch contacted me. So... There was uh, some pretty nearly semi-miraculous things that happened because he was, uh, it was a short period of time, but he was uh, eight blocks from home and went down a busy street and was next to two busier streets. And, uh, and here's the thing that was alarming, too, is is that that um, person was able to get him in her car to take him back to home. So that's another thing well, that's really... Well, Wyatt is very <laughs> discerning about nice people. Mm -hmm. uh, if he can usually sense if a person uh, is going to be inclined to be a nice person. And I say that from numerous times being at the grocery stores, Costco's, uh, uh, Winco's, uh, any other grocery store. He walk up to somebody and, and touch them even and start engaging them. And Initially, you're uh, apologizing for the behavior, but you're finding out that, well, this person works with uh, special needs kids or their teacher. And or they had a, a grandchild or a, a nephew or niece that was autistic. So 
it's almost an instinctual thing with Wyatt to, to kind of find people that are nice. Yeah. I don't yeah. know, and it's worrisome, but could he be fooled? So I don't know that. But I know that he, uh, he has a way of identifying friends. So she didn't have any trouble, apparently. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I was uh, terrified when I first discovered he was missing. I cursed like I do whenever I'm afraid or uh, whenever I'm afraid, I'm angry. That's my first emotional response. And I cursed. And immediately I said, whoa, I don't need to be cursing right now. I need to be praying. Yeah. So that's it. I prayed uh, passionately for a few seconds, minutes, and then. I'd like to think that the prayer might have uh, had helped because I had no control. That's when you, the powerlessness of the situation is is hard. You have no power in that situation. You know your child's gone you, and you can't find him. And it's a very bad feeling. So, Mike, you were talking there is that from the time that you had that moment of time where, huh, he's in the backyard, but his swing's down. What could he be doing? You said it was probably only about four or five minutes that he was outside. Before I went out to Before check. Before you went out to check. And then how long, from the moment you realized he was missing to the moment that you called 911 for assistance, how many minutes went by? Probably uh, another six or seven. So about 10 minutes in total span of time before he probably left your, your house or the property, got out of the backyard before dispatch was contacted. So about 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Yeah, 10 to 15. Probably okay. right in that range, 10 to 15 minutes. Probably closer to 10. Okay. Um, we'll come back to that here in a minute. My next guest is another Maria. And um, Maria, you have a long, um, you have some fantastic, I say fantastic, fantastically terrifying <laughs> stories from over the years because you have been one of my moms who has shared um, kind of some of your kiddo Josiah's um, long <laughs> He's had many eloping situations that have happened. My favorite, that started the very first one that was actually many, many years ago when you and your husband actually had a date night. Can okay, you share that story? I didn't know which one you wanted to start with. Yeah, let's, let's start, start with, with that one, one because it's been a great training tool. And I think it's it's very thought provoking because you guys learned a lot from that very first time where he went missing. And I'm using air quotes because there was a lot to be learned here. And so I feel like those are some gems that we can share with other parents here. So let's start with okay. that story. So typically in the past, we have only ever had uh, grandmas babysit Josiah, um, just knowing that he his challenges. So we had an aunt babysit for the first time. We were going to the arena for um, a Jason Aldean concert. Like it was our first date night in quite a while. And the arena is probably 20 minutes from our house, Max, not very long. Um, so we were at the concert and we got the phone call that we anticipated but have always dreaded that um, the babysitter couldn't find Josiah. So we literally fly home, call 911. Um, they were asking us all about his stats. And honestly, it's not something we were super um, up to speed on. We don't know how much he weighs. We didn't know how tall he was. Like we, I can measure him against myself, but I have no idea how, much, how tall that is. Yeah. And um, you're stressed out. So having been in a situation oh, yeah. during a 911 call, my mental capacity to be able to recall that stuff is seriously diminished because you're so scared and, dis oh, yeah. and stressed out. Yeah. All I kept saying is that he's nonverbal. He's not going to respond. He's nonverbal. He's not going to respond. They asked what clothing he had on. I wasn't sure if he had been changed into his pajamas at this point. If he was in his day clothes, did he have a coat on? Did he have shoes on? I have no information to give them. Um, so luckily, we have an amazing group of neighbors who we have like a phone tree just for 
life happens event. And so we had contacted our neighbor who had contacted everybody else and they were all out searching for flashlights. And mind you, at this point, it was September, probably eight o'clock. So it was dusky out and we live kind of like in the country. So everything could look like a deer. Everything has a shadow. You just can't really tell for sure. Um, so the neighbors are out with their flashlights calling his name. Of course, she went and responds. And then we get to the house and the sheriff had actually beat us here, thankfully. And um, yeah. they had asked the babysitter if they could come in. And she's like, please, like we've looked over couches. We've looked everywhere. His shoes are in the entryway, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. He could have put on anybody's shoes had he had left the house. Um, they actually found him in his closet buried underneath a pile of clothing which is not typical. He hasn't done it before and he hasn't done it since. So um, it's super scary. Um, it turned out honestly for the best. It was a great um, trial run. You know, we can say that because he was safe. So we knew where our gaps and our plans were. So now we have an updated index card by our front door with updated stats, um, his height, his weight, um, any like if his head is, if his hair is shorter, if it's longer, just any characteristics that we keep updated on an index card right by the front door so we can go to it at any minute should it happen again. Yeah. So that was the first. Now, one of the things that you told me was you did inspect for shoes because you did know that yeah. Josiah would not leave the house unless his shoes were on because that is something. Now, you, yep. you were accurate. You said he may not be wearing his shoes, but one of the, yes. like a nice strategy that you told me early on is, is always check for shoes. If you know your kid's not going to go outside, look to see like if anybody's shoes is missing, because if every, all of your shoes are accounted for, um, chances are he might still be in the house. Right. And I remember exactly. you telling exactly. me that. And I was like, wow, you know, that is a really good point because like, um, with Cooper, you're absolutely correct. He would, he may not be wearing his shoes, but he will be wearing something on his feet. So if you do kind of yeah. a quick assessment of, you know, oh, dad's shoes are missing, then he could still be outside. Yeah. Um, yeah. We have a gravel driveway and with his sensitivities, he just won't. He just will not go outside without shoes on. Yeah. Um, had I had been in the proper state, that would have been the question I asked the babysitter to check first. But in the moment, couldn't even think of it. Like yes. we've been anticipating this phone call for 13 years. But we weren't prepared for it. <laughs> yeah. And that's <laughs> so true. And so the phone tree, like that's where it was set up kind of for other things, but it's been since very helpful. Like, have you had to use the phone tree with your neighbors before? Because he is a little escape artist. Am I right? Yes. Um, this was the first time we've used it in regards to his elopements. Um, and I think it was just helpful, you know, like, we have such a good relationship with our neighbors and we don't live in a cul-de-sac or anything. Everybody kind of has three to four acres to their own selves. So it is hard to establish those trusting relationships with your neighbors, not knowing your kiddo or having much exposure to autism, but all of our neighbors have been amazing and it just jumped on board and we say, Oh, Josiah's out. And they all just kind of go into an action plan. Yeah. So it's now super helpful. One of the other strategies that I've loved is sometimes when you guys do go outside, um, you have put an orange vest on him in the past. Yes. Okay. Yes. So can you explain so, your orange vest strategy? So um, this was when he was probably three or four years younger. He senses um, ob objective to it. So he won't put it on. But when he was quite younger, we had like one of those safety patrol vests. And on the back, again, we, um, like close pinned another laminated index card that has my name is Josiah Jennings. This is my address. This is my parents' phone number. So if he ever does wander off, um, people would have access to his information. 
the problem we run into now is now that when he does elope, he's 13, people are less likely to interfere because he looks like a teenager. Correct. Yeah. So when he was a lot younger, it was very helpful because people would notice a six-year-old walking down the street when they shouldn't be unsupervised. Yeah. The other thing that I thought was really proactive of you that you guys did, which I was really impressed and it's really stayed with me, is um, you guys kind of know his places that he is really motivated to get to. So you did, weren't you? Did mm-hmm. you tell me that you took him to McDonald's or in some of those other places? Yes. So after we had found him, and obviously he wasn't missing. Um, we did decide that, you know, part of our new action plan was just to take him to the local businesses as well as the local state patrol and local um, police department, introduce ourselves and him to like the managers of the establishment that he would frequent um, as long as his picture. So if he were to wander off, they would have exposure to him. They would know his name and he would be like in the state patrol database as well as um, the local police department. Again, we kind of live in this in-between line where we don't really know whose boundaries we are. So we just covered all of our bases with law enforcement. Perfect. But yes, we introduced them to everybody. <laughs> yeah. So, and that worked for a while, but you're right now, now Josiah is a young adult. I mean, he, I see pictures of him and I see him and he looks like a young man. Um, and so things have changed because you wouldn't necessarily stop. Um, and he looks very typical um, mm-hmm. at first glance. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, it's not until you try to engage him in a conversation that I think probably a a, a, a bystander would say, huh, something's something, OK. Oh, so, there's something going on because he looks, um, you know, when I see you guys at sporting events for the other kids or activities and you just glance at him initially, it would take a few minutes or a minute or so for someone to figure out that like, oh, you know, he probably has autism. So I think it really is really a testament to it becomes more challenging as they get older and they start looking like young adults because they would have that ability to be out. So could you share with us the recent story that was so terrifying yeah. that that then it really rocked all of us, including me, because like I was really sad and t- I'm, I'm scared for you because that was really scary what happened. Yes. So prior to this recent incident, I guess I should just precurse as well. Like we do a lot of trainings at home, like our, a lot of parent induced ABA. So we've taught him how to walk safely along the side of the road, how to stop and look for cars, just those safety pieces. Um, so I received a phone call from, um, can I say the hospital name? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I'd say yes. Um, Go for it. Okay. So I received a phone call from Sacred Heart Emergency Room saying they might have one of our sons. Um, my mind went to our oldest. And this was a weekend. Asthma. And this was a weekend, like a Sunday, wasn't it? Yes. A Sunday morning. It was a Saturday morning. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it was yeah. a Saturday morning. Um, so my mind automatically went to our oldest son. He's been staying with his mom off and on. So I just assumed it was him. And I had like, oh, you guys have Isaiah? They're like, no, we have. Are you missing a Josiah? I'm like, no, he's sleeping in bed. Like, and his elopement pattern has never been at night. It's only been during the day. And I'm like, nope, Josiah's in bed. I'm like, well, let me go check. And sure enough, I open up his bedroom door and there's no Josiah. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Okay, so you must have him because he's not here. (laughs) So we literally fly down again to the sacred to the emergency room 
And he was there. And this was like six o'clock in the morning at this point. Now, keep in mind, Um, everyone who's listening, Josiah was fine. He was not injured. So him being there wasn't because in the elopement, he was hurt. I just want to make sure people understand he was he was safe. Um, So the fact that he was at the hospital wasn't because he was injured. Okay, so continue. Yeah. And I'll go into that, too. Um, So we get there panicked and um, so when we get there, we were able to get the backstory. The state patrol was there. And then, of course, there was a doctor um, and a couple of nurses. So we were filled in that he was actually um, made his way to the Super 8 Hotel, which is about two and a half miles from our home. Um, we weren't sure how he made it there. Honestly, he didn't have his shoes on. It was still winter. So there was berms of snow um, along the side of the road, and he only had socks on. He did have his coat on, and we put him to bed at 10, which was honestly later than normal for him. And we were passed out by 10.30. Like, we run hard all day. So when we're everybody's in bed, we're in bed. We, we, don't, we follow suit rather quick. Um, so the state patrol had filled us in that they received a call from the hotel around midnight. Um, that there was a kiddo here. They at first assumed that he was just staying at the hotel. He didn't have shoes on. He kept going in and out. There was a pool there. So he kept wanting to get into the pool. Um, and he's nonverbal and um, very, very, very limited communication without his iPad. So they were trying to talk to him and ask him questions and he wasn't responding. So 911 was called. The local um, volunteer fire department picked him up from the hotel. Unfortunately, he did become combative. Um, his Visions of first responders is very much relatable to superheroes and transformer movies. So they're always the bad guy. They're always causing harm. So it does cause him quite a bit of anxiety. So he was transported to Sacred Heart um, in full restraint and given some medication to deescalate him as well. Um, So we don't know what happened between 1030 and midnight. We don't know how he walked to the hotel if somebody picked him up and just dropped him off there as a safe place. Um, We're right by the freeway and right by a truck stop. So thinking of what might've happened just makes me super uneasy. (laughs) Yeah. Because when they examined his feet without shoes, they were, it's a little perplexing that he would have walked that distance with bare feet and there was no evidence on his feet that he had been walking in the cold or on rough surfaces. Yep, his his socks were wet, but he didn't have frostbite. His feet, by the time we got there, weren't even that cold. Um, yeah, he just his pants weren't wet, which I assume would have happened walking that long for that amount of time. Um, but it, it, so he was gone for eight hours, and we had no idea. Yeah, so you wake up on a regular no Saturday idea. morning, and the hospital yep. is saying we think we have Josiah here. Here's the intro. Tell them how they figured out because he didn't ever say his name. So I want every, this is such an an, an incredible story. Tell them how they figured out his name. Cause this is just mind blowing to me. So they were asking him and he wasn't responding to when asked his name or his address. So while he was in the emergency room, they were doing his stats. And of course the nurse had gloves on and a pen writing down the stats. He took the pen away from the nurse and wrote his name on her gloves. Um, we have been practicing so incredibly diligent mm-hmm. about important life skills and functional abilities mm-hmm. where he knows his phone number, he can write it down or type it into a phone and he can write his first and last name. 
So that was the only reason that they found us is that they went through the database about all the Josiah Jennings that were teen-ish with um, a possible autism. I was pretty clear that it was autism, but possible autism diagnosis and cold called every Josiah Jennings until they got to us. We weren't the first ones. So there were parents parents getting phone calls saying we might have your son. I can't imagine that emotional roller coaster. Like, Oh my gosh, where is he? And then finding him in his room. Yeah. Like, you know, unfortunately uh you were the, the lucky winner of the, of the terrifying and and it kind of now, so now it's kind of opened this whole door. Yeah. Yeah, So it's opened this whole door. Now, since then, Maria, you guys have put locks and alarms on your doors and windows and talk to us about that because that's been kind of an interesting situation as well. So we have basically put our house and definitely his room on lockdown, honestly. Um, I don't know a better way to describe it. We now have alarms on his windows. He's never once eloped through his windows, but that doesn't mean tomorrow's not going to be the day. So we just have chimes on the windows that kind of sound like 7-Eleven when they open, just that ding dong. So we can hear it throughout the house, but it's not incredibly uncomfortable or loud. Um, we do have an alarm that's positioned in our hallway facing into his bedroom. Motion sensor, then it has three settings. So it does have like the 7-Eleven ding dong sound every time there's motion. So basically, if he opens his door, it will just ding dong one time. At night, there is a deeper sensor where it's very loud, very robust, and like a flashing strobe light that goes off. And you have to un you have to reset the alarm at that point. So you have to get up and turn it on and off. So that has been super successful when we're in our room or just um, anywhere in the house and he's supposed to be in bed and we can hear that alarm coming on. So that's actually woken us up a couple of times. The, The key is now he's tall enough to turn it off. So he has learned that if he reaches enough, he can turn off the alarm. So if he gets it before we hear it, so honestly, our sleep has been extremely light. <laughs> yes. Isn't it funny? Because when we're talking about these kiddos are, you know, they are, you know, significantly impacted by autism, but yet they are so smart. They- right. So he's 13. Um, functionally, he's about a two-year-old, right? So he has the behaviors when he's not getting his way. He's very two-year-old behavior, throwing fits and the tantrums and the whole thing. Um cognitively though like his reasoning skills are that of a 10 year old yeah so it's very scary giving a kiddo who's two with the reasoning skills of a 10 year old like and the size of a 13 so a two-year-old might want to get out of the house but can't reach the door handle yeah he can't like there isn't that height limitation that comes along with the age yeah so it's a very scary very scary combination correct so um you have also employed some other strategies because this is this isn't just something where you know this has been an ongoing concern of yours from the time he was three um yeah and so now it's just getting to a point where you're having to get more you're getting having to use more technology what other type of technology have you guys used with josiah to help with this so since that um we we're trying to brainstorm ideas on how to best identify him lack of I don't know the right term, but label him or kind of get some sort of GPS tracking. And um, we joked about getting his name tattooed with his phone number. Again, you, you and I have joked about this. I, I honestly don't yes. think it's such a bad idea. 
You know no, what I mean? No, when, no. when <laughs> under the circumstances, wouldn't it be lovely if we could just tattoo on their arm, their name and phone number or mom and dad's phone number? Because again, when they don't That's have, yep. when they don't have the capacity to be able to communicate, you know, it, it sounds awful and such a violation of, you know, rights. But on the other hand too, we're talking about safety. And so we, right. and, and, and I joke, joke about this, but we're kind of joking, but like, Hey, if only someone would be willing to help us with that. But, <laughs> yeah. Right. So we, you know, we brainstormed the idea. He won't keep a bracelet on just not a sensory tactile thing. Won't do it. Um, there's GPS for shoes, but you know, he'd have to put the same shoes on. Yep. So we, amongst our hours of research, we came across the angel sense and that is the technology that we have decided to use. So it is um, a little GPS system that comes in a cloth case that is magnetized to whatever you want to put it on on his body. So his shirt or his pants. It's just like the ink sensors at retail stores that with the magnetic. So you pull it apart with this strong magnetic. There is no getting it off unless he changes his clothes. Um, at first, we got the belt to go with it because we didn't think he would tolerate sitting down with it at school. Um, did not tolerate the belt. <laughs> Proved us wrong. So um, we are able to keep it in his pocket and he's super accommodating with it. And he has been in the routine now that at night we charge it in the morning, we plug it back up. But now that he's been home more, he wears it at night versus the day. So we're kind of getting accustomed to using it all hours of the day at different times because we don't want it to be too complacent for him. Like, um, but it's a monthly prescription. We have an app on our phone that we can see where he's at at all times with the address. Um, if he's traveling, like when he's traveling on the school bus, it tells us the rate of speed, which has been helpful for when he's eloped before we could see that he was walking and then the speed increased. So we knew somebody had picked him up. Come to find out it was my mom. So oh, thank God. Thank God. Thank God. But you know, that gives us that little bit of information that he's no longer on foot. Um, we are able to have like a, a, a crisis team on the app. So once it dings, and past a certain point, we can just hit a button and it will notify like my parents. And then the search will begin where everybody kind of has like their designated areas that we search. So we're not double searching and missing spots. So everybody has like certain directions on our road to check if that were to happen. Yeah. And I have had some families because this is such an issue um, and they won't keep the device on their body. They've actually used a belt system where actually it does, it's around their waist, not through their clothing and they can't get it off. It's literally like tethered to their body, like a zip tie, if you will. And while their kiddo didn't tolerate it at first, um, they learned to have to get, you know, to tolerate it because it's such a necessity because of the, of them, of their eloping patterns. And so, um, so some of them just have it be, it's a permanent belt that's around their waist all the time. So even if they strip down to like nakedness, the only thing that would be on them would be the belt with that sensor attached to it. Um, and, and that's just the reality of, of what we have to do in some situations because, you know, um, you can't be complacent about it is the sad thing is you have to really, um, Maria, would you mind telling us how much is, is the monthly subscription to the angel sense? I can't remember. It's been you know, so long. I think it's $40 a month. Yeah. I think, but yeah, but definitely worth it. And also too, if you, for some programs, like there are some programs that will actually, um, pay for the monthly subscription if it's a, if it's a barrier to it, um, to being able to have it. But, um, so 
thank you for sharing that story because it gets like you guys have had such a long line, like many, many, many years of, of having to troubleshoot this. Here's my next question for like um, the the Maynards. Um, how when you guys called it in, um, how well like you guys called dispatch um, 911 and um, I'm trying to unmute your mic here. So hopefully this works. Sometimes it's a little bit delayed. Um, was your. Hold on one second. Okay, I unmute. I got it was just being stubborn. How was your experience when you called dispatch? Do you, you know, obviously you reported your son that he had eloped from the house. Um, you obviously let them know that he did you know what he was wearing at the time? I did. Oh, you did. Okay. I knew, but Mike didn't. He okay. panicked. Well, I only knew that he didn't have any shoes on and uh, a t shirt. I didn't know what color it was or anything like that. I knew he was a uh, he went out directly from getting out of bed out back. So he, no pants, no shoes, I guess. Yeah. And how did dispatch, did you feel like dispatch asked all the right questions that they were versed in terms of, okay, this is a child with autism, nonverbal. Um, one of the things that you alluded to, Mike, when you were talking was they were asking like locations of interest. Um, and that's been something that dispatch um, and first responders have been trained on because with some of our kids, they're very motivated by their by their favorite places. Like Maria, you talked about how you, you know, had gone and introduced him at some of his favorite places, like McDonald's was one of those places that you felt like he might go. Um, you guys felt like he might go to homes. And so was that something you just offered to dispatch or were those questions that the dispatch asked you when, once you identified that he had autism? They asked, uh, the dispatch asked those questions. Yeah. And I thought her questions were uh, very good. Yeah. And the reason why I'm pointing that out is because, um, you know, I, I think one of the, you know, there is, you know, right. Unfortunately, right now, there's a lot of we're living in a time where there's a lot of controversy about like the police and um, their capabilities and how they interact with people in different calls. And I just want to go on record by saying, you know, we're really lucky here in our Spokane region because we have a really great working relationship with the Spokane Fire Department, the Sheriff's Department, Spokane Fire or Police Department, and, you know, dispatch, in, in fact. And all of that is because we recognize our special needs kids, um, and I say kids, but even adults, um, are prone to wandering and eloping. And so I'm really wanting to make sure that we highlight that, you know, in your experience, when you called 911, um, it, that definitely showed in terms of, of the questions that the dispatchers were asking because they're trained, they're educated. Correct. Yeah. It, it seemed that way to me. Yeah. yeah. And then you also said too, once they found him and they had, you know, did they ever tell you what their, what their, what they, what their plan was for looking for Wyatt or were you just, were you fairly, um, unaware of what the police department was doing. I was uh, unaware of what took place. They, I don't think uh, Maria talked to the uh, police officer. She's a lady. Maybe she told Maria something, but uh, I didn't ask much and she didn't volunteer much, except that uh, she was uh, going to the playgrounds where the dispatch had directed her to at Holmes Elementary School and uh, saw Wyatt. Just as uh, the uh, school personnel had him out in the parking lot at the school. Yeah. Did so the did the dispatch um, ask you whether or not he could be combative? No, I don't recall it. But uh, 
there seemed that there was some comment made about how nice and good it was that he got into Denise's car. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but beyond that, I don't recall anything more being said. Have you guys you're, changed? Your child, you're just so happy. Oh, you gosh. You forget all the smart questions you should be asking. For example, I never asked if uh, they attempted to ask would it, ask his name because uh, he gets ABA therapy, and uh, they've been working with him for a couple of years on getting him to answer the question of what is your name, what's your mom's name, what's your dad's name, what's your address, and phone number. So he's been worked with on that, but it hasn't been. Uh, I don't. I forgot to ask if they attempted that. Well, I I, I can find out for you because we're going to be as a second part of this podcast is we're going to be interviewing um, at least one of the officer. Actually, one of he's a lieutenant that was actually involved in your your nine one one call, and so mm-hmm. I can actually that will be one of those questions that we ask because it really every time we have a situation where a, a, a child with a disability elopes, and if we have the if Isaac Foundation has the ability to connect with that family, we can learn so much from one another. And that's the thing is, I, I guess that would be my um, one thing, you know, I'm going to ask you guys here in a second, Marie, you talked a lot about what you've learned, but, um, and what you've tried and things that you're now doing different. And I'm going to ask the same question to you, Mike and Maria as well. But um, one of the things is, you know, parents hate like, and I'm, I'm with you too. The last thing I want to do is just like announce to the world, like, Oh, I, you know, my kid ran away and we had to call the police and locate them. Cause it's, it's like, it's, you feel like you failed, right? Like as a parent, like you, even though you did nothing wrong, you still feel like, Oh man, like we really like dropped the ball on that one. Right. And so a lot of times what parents response is, it's like, well, we're, I, we can't tell anybody that he wandered away and we didn't know where he was for, you know, 30 minutes or 15 minutes. But here's the thing, like Maria Jennings, you told us about Josiah, we found out about it and it has been such, it, it becomes a learning tool for all of us. And that's part of the reason why we're doing this podcast. If parents are embarrassed and they're not, you know, they're, they're not wanting to share because they're, you know, they feel shame that they somehow did something wrong. Um, let me just put your mind at risk. You know, you're doing the best that you can. You're utilizing the tools that you can. You're using the strategies that you have access to. Sometimes financial barrier is there too, but by sharing your situation and your experience, we can all learn some of these little nuances of what to look for, um, what strategies you can use, you know, like the phone tree might be an option for some people. Um, one of the things that um, I'm sure the police department and the fire department will mention here when we interview them in this next half of the session is, is, you know, don't wait too long before you call 911. And that was why I asked you, um, Mike, how long it was before you actually realized that, okay, we need help because we can't find him. Because, um, you know, we do training with even uh, search and rescue, the sheriff's department. And so we train a lot of search and rescue. And one of the biggest frustrations that they have is, um, is that parents wait too long because, again, we think we can figure it out. Like, okay, we're gonna be able to find him. And you don't really want to tell people that you can't find your kiddo and that they've like gotten farther away and they're out of your immediate control. And so the problem with doing that is, is that then the search area grows 
exponentially um, the longer that we wait before we call in them to help. Now, with that being said, you know, there's also the, you know, oh, I woke up this morning and, you know, like I can't find him. You know, the police department will also tell you they do get frustrated where we have kiddos that are are known wanderers and there are not active things that are being done to try and work with professionals, ABA providers to try and get to the root of why they're wandering or put in place certain like safety safety measures in order to keep them from wandering. Because, you know, if you're calling 911, you know, 15 times a month, it would base, it means that we need to be looking at other options. And so I will be honest that the police department reaches out to us at times um, because they want us to work with a family or help troubleshoot things that might be beneficial so that that way they're not being called in as frequently on the same kiddos that are known to um, wander. Maria, I see that you have your you're waving at me that there's something you want to piggyback on. Yeah, if I could. So there's been two other times that we've had to call 911 with elopement since we've even gotten the angels in. Um, living where we do, our Wi-Fi isn't the strongest connection, so it doesn't always pick up. Um, so the first time we discovered that he was missing, we did the whole, um, like the crisis team, everybody was out looking. We were looking for about 15 minutes possibly before we decided to call 911 because he wasn't where he typically had been. Um, two things that I found interesting with that is, yes, when I asked them, when should we call, they said, call right away or as soon as you notice. And I assumed that it was best for us to put in good intent and then call. So that was a huge learning opportunity for me. Yes. Um, I was trying to not overutilize resources. Like yes. I'm a super cautious person of that, right? Like it's our responsibility. We've got to put time and effort in to find them. And then if we can't, then we call. Um, but they said, absolutely not call it like feel comfortable calling. It's Okay. Um, but what I also found interesting when I was talking to dispatch, dispatch made it sound like they knew what I was talking about. I said he had an elopement behavior. He will be combative about getting into police cars. Um, he'd be more likely to get into a regular car than a police car. So an unmarked car might be better. Um, and then when state patrol came, they had actually never heard the term elopement. So that was new for them. They're like, yeah, we didn't, we haven't heard that before. So I thought that was a good learning opportunity for them that we could provide. Yes. Washington State Patrol. (laughs) Yes. And that's actually good feedback because Washington State Patrol is one of the only agencies that we actually haven't worked and done active training with. So that would actually explain potentially why they're not familiar with that term. So thank you for that. I I do have to compliment them where about two weeks after us calling them and the gentleman hadn't heard of that term before, um, I myself was in an unfortunate accident and the same state patrol was one of the ones that responded. He remembered us. He asked how Josiah was doing. And I got a little feedback on him where he's actually from California. He was like in the, uh, the gang unit. So elopement probably wasn't part of the terminology that he was exposed to in his prior career choices, you know? Yeah. Um, but I do applaud him. He remembered our situation. He remembered the case. So even his little bit of lack of knowing some of our terms. Um, I think we get super comfortable in what we talk about, but sometimes we ourselves should put it in layman's terms because not everybody speaks the autism world. <laughs> oh, that is so true. And the thing that I'm going to say too is, is that um, again, I'm bringing this up because right now there's a lot of negativity associated with law enforcement. And I'm just wanting to make sure that we're really clear here is that, you know, um, aside from everything that we're seeing on a national level, when it comes to law enforcement, understand that 
99% of the law enforcement individuals that we are working with are really wanting to learn and they want to know how to yes. do their job better. And so, you know, I've never had in all the trainings I've done with law enforcement, um, search and rescue, um, you know, fire departments, you know, EMS world, have I ever come across a first responder that was just like, nah, this is really not like this doesn't affect me or this isn't going to be useful in how I do my job. It's really not the case. And they're learning just like Isaac Foundation is learning and how we're learning of what to how to help families and kind of suggestions and things to keep in mind. They're learning, too. And so um, that's why the second part of this podcast is going to be us um, doing an interview with um, a, a dispatch um, officer and police department, and then fire department. And two out of the three of those individuals that are going to be interviewed for the second part are also special needs parents. And so they have the benefit of being able to live the life of a special needs parent, but then also um, they work in first response world. So they have kind of that unique perspective where they have a foot in both ponds, if you will. So um, with Wyatt's parents, I'm going to ask you guys this because, um, Maria, you shared a lot about some of your active steps that you've taken since then. Um, how about you guys? Um, has there is, Have you guys done anything different? Um, I'm sure you have because probably any time that, you know, you have a, you know, your kiddo elope, um, you, you know, you've already mentioned when you're telling the story how there used to be a four foot gate, which is now I'm guessing you fixed the gate. Now the gate is nice and small. Yeah. What other things did you guys do after that? Because I know that you guys, Maria, you went on Facebook because there's a special needs um, parenting. It's a private Facebook group for special needs parents. And you immediately put uh, a post out there. This is what happened. Does anybody have any suggestions? And you, a lot of people um, commented just, you know, giving you assurance like, oh, hugs to you, mama. That was really scary. We're just glad it worked out really well. But then you also had a lot of people that gave you some suggestions. Were any of those helpful? I felt panicky, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I don't want my house to look like Eastern State Hospital. Yeah, yeah. And um, I don't know, the idea of having a GPS on my kid scares me a bit. Yeah. So, um. I mean, we're still talking about it. So you're still deciding. Do you guys sleep well at night? Or are you guys a little bit more like concerned about? Oh, yeah, you I never did. Yeah. No, no. Oh, um, we should. Uh, we added the alarm. We should mention that uh, this was uh, the fourth escape event over the last uh, seven years, six years. So it's not the first time. And as why uh, it's grown bigger, you have to take uh, you take different kinds of strategies. Since it's not something that has happened often, but it has happened, uh, you're always on alert, of course. Mm-hmm. How can, old was he the very first time he eloped? Well, he's when he's about three or three years old. Or uh, he, I was working in the backyard, and I removed some of the fence. Uh, and to work on the house, and uh, I was inside, he was out in the back, and I heard a little uh, latent chirp and cheer, and uh, I thought, oh, I wonder if he didn't go out the gap. So I went out the, this, uh, out the back door, and sure enough, uh, he, was, he was in the backyard. And so I just chased him down that time. He didn't get more than uh, 100 yards from the house. The neighbor recognized him. You know, he's running down the sidewalk, probably wasn't just... Shorts and no shirt or something, you know, and and so I just chased him down that time. He didn't get very far, but it, it was the first time that he actually took off. So I knew that he, and I sensed that he uh, was exalted 
in that. He uh, enjoyed the tricking his dad, getting out. And, after, and then the next time was a couple years after that, years or two, and I was working on the house again that time, and he snuck out behind me. I was outside of the backyard and uh, discovered that he was missing. And that time he was gone a little longer, and he was at a neighbor's house, uh, had a nice little garden, maybe a water feature in their yard about four blocks away. And uh, but I found him that time on my own, just by foot. And uh, after that, though, we start getting more and more so he's getting bigger and he's proving that he can do go on a lark like that you start to uh take further actions a few years ago we put locks on every gate in the backyard prior to that we could use bungee cords around the gates to hold them in place well he gets big enough he can remove the bungee cords so then you go to locks um we used to have a double key uh, back door set and uh, it had to be opened by key from the inside and the outside. Well, we changed those. That was inconvenient and a fire concern. But the back door, the front door had two locks that turned in opposite directions. It was complicated for even Maria and I to figure out. So that always slowed him down. He, but he is just as grown older. He knows how to do that now. Um, so now, since this last event, we raised the gate in the backyard. The fences were quite adequate, but the gate was low. But now it's all like the rest of the fences and we put alarms real simple alarms on the front and back doors with a little siren yeah or it could be set for the ding dong like at uh, 7-eleven or whatever but uh, at night we can put a set it for a siren that wake you up like a fire alarm yeah so uh, i guess my point is, is as he gets bigger and older he gets uh, more capable uh, you have to adapt your strategies equal to the to the challenge yeah. For him. Yeah. Now he's only, like I said, uh, I could count five times total his uh, escape. Uh, twice we've used the police. This last time was the second time. Two times, uh, uh, he was found quickly uh, with the help of neighbors. And in one case, when I went to the school to pick up Hunter, uh, he got out of the car. Oh. I mean, not taking him in. I just gets be so quick, you know, and I got back and the door, I didn't lock the door on the car. He had, we have a child safety lock on his side. But I come back to the car, you know, just minutes after I run into the office and the door's wide open and he's gone. Well, that time, uh, the school counselor and uh, I think it was the principal found him. Yeah. As I was driving around a couple of loops, I just got back to the start. I, I alerted the school, hey, uh, some teachers and some people, my autistic son, Wyatt, is gone. So... I go get in the car and drive around that time, back in just a few minutes, and I was just ready to call 911, and there he come around the corner, principal and the school counselor with Wyatt and Phil, he found some balloons across the street. Yeah. Somebody's yard. So uh, it's uh, kind of like that. It hasn't happened often. When it does, it's terrifying. Only twice we've had to call the police, and uh, as he's going over, you ramp up that security those security measures and now we're looking at in the future you know uh, we hope that through some social stories and work with the ABA therapists that he can begin to understand uh, the risks involved the, the, the danger yeah but at the same time obviously you you got to take every tact you know I think it may be important to remember that you don't want to forget the tact that the child is intelligent and can possibly learn that 
he is in danger if he is not with care providers. Yeah. And, uh, so we're thinking of that, but also we're looking at that angel sense. We've talked about that, and uh, we've talked about even more strenuous measures uh, uh, here in the house to uh, keep him. I was going to use the word incarcerated, you know, but uh, but that's another thing. You got you want to have a, this balance of of sane. Uh, re, uh, precautions, saying efforts and, and reasonable, uh, yeah. You know, feel like you're in a home, uh, but uh, yeah, the angel sense uh, is something we, we talked about, but also, you know, yes, work with the ADA therapist and continue to work with those uh, identification, personal identification skills, and also trying to teach him to understand what is at risk. Yeah. When he leaves the house, you know, the child understands uh, that he doesn't want to be hurt. He knows he doesn't want to be hurt. Uh, he knows he can be what? hurt. Um, I've observed him. He doesn't want to be hurt when he climbs. He's cautious. Uh, he's careful with his fingers, even though he's very curious with his hands. He knows that he can be hurt. He's always been wise around the stove, you know, cautious. So you realize that he has a concept of injury. Injury. So you hope that maybe you can transfer that concept to the idea that if he is away from his care providers, that he is at risk of being harmed. So you know, it's just, you got to consider everything. Yeah. So you don't want to neglect to try to teach him. Yeah. And have respect for his intelligence in certain regards. Now he's very impulsive. Impulsivity can cause him to do things that before he thinks about it. Oh yeah, for sure. That's like the, a big part of autism, at least in our house. But um, one of the things I was going to tell, uh, mention is, um, like I said, I, I spoke to the lieutenant, you know, we had connected and I spoke to the lieutenant because we asked him to be on this podcast. And one of the things, what was nice for Wyatt is, is that he is very um, open and receptive to law enforcement. There was no issue whatsoever. He didn't get amped up. Um, you know, I knew, you know, it wasn't at all a surprise because he's participated in, in our special needs station visit. And I'd actually joked with you, Maria, that one of your guys's date tools that might be in the future is it's park a fire truck in your backyard because he's completely content sitting in the back of a fire <laughs> truck and is very comfortable um, and he'll just sit in there forever and, you know, just be very content. So I've, you know, teased you guys that you might want to look at that as like, you know, a, an activity for your backyard. But that was the the one thing that the lieutenant did say is that he he really had no aversions to law enforcement. And there was no, you know, uh, it's not that he became, you know, anxious or combative once he realized that there were people looking for him or now Maria with Josiah. That's not necessarily the case because you had even suggested to um, dispatch that because... I know exactly the movie that you're talking about. Like your son, Josiah is very motivated by, um, by superheroes. And I, I'm not at all surprised to hear that he actually likes, um, uh, Transformers. It's personally one of my favorites as well. But in the very first movie of Transformers, the Decepticon um, Transformer robot was actually that of a of a police car that's had to punish and enslave printed on the side. And throughout that movie, they were running from that Transformer, and he was kicking the crap out of the main character. Um, and so I use that actually as a training tool for parents to 
be able to appreciate that some of what the fears that we have when we have a kiddo who is um, has aversions to law enforcement, sometimes it's because of negative experiences that they've had um, or they've witnessed, but some of it can be because of media perceptions. So you are really smart and you have told them all along that he is, as soon as he sees a police car, he is going to become escalated and it might be better to have vehicles that are unmarked looking for him, correct? Yes. Um, you know, I think that's just such an important piece of information. Um, he, and I hate bringing this up, but I feel like it's appropriate. He is um, African-American as well. So just with the news going on, we can't be overcautious of any situation. Um, if you look at him, <clears throat> it's not until you ask him a question that do you know that he's autistic. He does a lot of hand stemming and a lot of his gestures <clears throat> could be interpreted to mean other things. So we just need them to know that <clears throat> it's stemming, it's autism, and he will be combative. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, with the recent elopement and having to be um, sedated to get into the um, ambulance, he's now super cautious about entering one of those. So we are doing the autism in the wild as much as we possibly can. But We've had a huge setback on that. Yeah. Um, before he would get into it, he would at least sit in the back. It, so we have some ground to make up on. Yeah. But by nobody's fault, though. I mean, no. it was just situation. Everybody they, did absolutely the best yeah. that they could. Um, sometimes that just happens. Sometimes you just have setbacks with autism, and it is what it is. Like, and, you yes. just pick it up from where you are. You start back. You know you can get there. Yeah. And then you keep on moving forward. So. Yeah. And that's, you know, and that you guys are such a rational um, set of parents in that, you know, you guys recognize, you know, there is no fault that there was for any of the first response responders that mm. participated. They had to do the best they could to keep him safe. And that meant that they had to onboard a sedative and they had to use restraints to get him down to Sacred Heart. Um, yep. And so not surprised. Yes. Yes, but can absolutely. But the cool thing about it is, is that, you know, we're not screwed. We're not like, oh, this is hopeless. There are like in Spokane in our area, we do what we call Isaac's um, Autism the Wild uh, special needs station visits where we bring um, we work with our local police, ambulance company and fire department. And once a month or sometimes twice a month, we invite, you know, families to register that have special needs loved ones. And we ask them to bring their siblings, too, because siblings can get really triggered by first responders as well. Um, and we invite them in and we practice interaction skills. We practice getting in out of the cars. We practice playing games with the different first responders so that we get them used to the first responders so that they have positive associations. And so um, we just have to work more with Josiah because but again, you know, one of the other movies that I'm going to talk about when we talk about media perceptions, if anybody has ever watched the Lego movie, the very first one, there's the good cop, bad cop guy. OK, and um, that was really when you start looking at that movie, love the Lego movie. But the fact that they had the villain um, as for part of the, the movie, be the police officer did us no favors. You know what I'm saying? And so that's where, too, you know, we have to be more cognizant. We have to at least be somewhat cognizant of what our kids are watching, because if you think that that doesn't affect then how they perceive first responders, you're crazy because they very much do. Um, so anyway, we're going to talk about some of those media perceptions when we interview our dispatcher, our firefighter and our police officer in the next section. Did I cover everything? Did you guys um, have an opportunity to kind of share, you know, 
everything that you felt like is important for other families to know and understand and, and consider? I guess I just want to reiterate the fact that it does happen. It is um, something that's a part of our world and it's not shameful to talk about because with every experience we've had, not only did we gain knowledge, but other people involved. And um, I just think education is super important and um, calling on your tribe when needed, whoever that may be. So I, I am not shy about things. So I will share stories at any time, but I know that it has helped many people. So many, so, Maria, so many. Thank you. To yourself, so many. Yeah. <laughs> um, so instead of keeping it to yourself, it's okay to tell your story. Um, there is no judgment in this world. We all lived it or we're going to, or we've already passed it. Um, just know that as parents, we are doing the best we can. Sometimes we get complacent. Sometimes we let our guard down a little bit. And that's, of course, when situations tend to happen. Um, but that's okay, too. We are allowed to be humans, even though we're mamas and papas of autism kiddos. It Stuff happens, and there's no shame in it. Yeah. And you I, can always I, come back just like they can come back. So yeah. it's all right. Share your story. <laughs> yes. I would like to echo what Maria said. And uh, that uh, being feeling guilty or shameful is uh, not particularly helpful. That that's counter motivating. Uh, also, uh, we've always taken Wyatt out, and uh, we've never been ashamed of him. So everybody in our neighborhood knows him well, and recognizes him, and would and have been told that uh, if they ever see him out of the yard, to bring him back over to the house. And uh, finally, uh, something I learned is uh, how I hadn't realized or thought about that all autistic children are so different and why it happens to be very relational. He loves people generally. And I never thought about how that would be for a child that would be cautious or frightened by uh, uniformed people or a stranger. Uh, it's so different with every child. That's what makes this all kind of complicated. So I've learned a lot uh, during this podcast. Good. Well, that's always helpful to hear that even our guests can actually find it helpful. So good. That's great feedback. How about you, other Maria, Wyatt's mom, Maria? Like, did we cover everything? Yes. Yes. And Maria's stories were very helpful to me. So, yeah. Well, I have several stories that I will share in the next section, but since I will be having my first responders on there, some of my stories about our own wandering experiences will be related to them. So um, as it turns out, Lieutenant Coles, who will be joining us, is actually um, one of um, a handful of people that actually had a relationship with my son, Isaac. So he um, actually, not only do I work with him in the capacity of the Spokane Police Department, but he actually knew Isaac. And so he can attest to, you know, probably a couple times where, you know, I was panicked because Isaac got away from me. So, um, you know, Matt has been learning about autism from the moment he met Isaac, and now it's really served him well in his career. So it was just ironic that it just ha so happens that Lieutenant Coles was involved in your guys' call, which um, was nice because it, um, you know, he's no, um, Lieutenant Coles is actually, he's the one that he supervises the guys that were the people that were out looking. So he was um, coordinating the the search in terms of where people were looking. And he sits on the phone and communicates with dispatch in terms of um, 
so yeah, so he was the behind the scenes. He's the higher up guy that oversees the the crews, the the guys on the force. So that's how he was involved. So he looks at it as a supervisory level um, and coordinates um, the people on the ground. Yeah. So there were three police cruisers cruisers at the school. So there were three police cars there at the school when I went to pick up Wyatt, which is like I said, not much more than twenty five. For 30 minutes by the time I got there, from the time I realized he was missing. So, yeah, they really acted fast. And uh, he was in one of the unmarked vehicles because he did actually have it. He was one, he did have a conversation with you. So, oh, yeah, okay. I, I well, I don't remember everything that happened. Yeah, so no worries. <laughs> yeah, so like I said, we've all been there. Um, so. So much. Actually, I will tell you, even Caleb wanders. So when we're talking about this, you know, we, we have examples today of like our lower or more profoundly or more significantly impacted kids wandering. But make no mistake, Caleb wanders, but it's different. What happens with Caleb is that we might be like pig out in the park and he gets his eyes fixated on something and he want he gets to it. And then he's so fixated on it. Then he like looks around and then it's like, oh, wait, where's my mom or where's my like, you know, my people. And mm-hmm. he doesn't he's not comfortable talking to people so then he just shuts down he gets overwhelmed he won't talk to strangers he is intimidated by law enforcement um because you know he has seen transformers he has watched the lego movie he also watched a dunkin donut um commercial where you know a person was you know sitting there eating a donut and then they were tackled by a police officer because it was a spoof on cops and and donuts which is super funny but caleb was like terrified for the longest time he was worried about eating a donut in public because he'd get tackled by a police officer i mean seriously um so for caleb it's a little bit different because he's just he's such an introvert that he won't talk to strangers because that's what he was taught not to do and he doesn't he's afraid and intimidated by law enforcement because he's worried that he might make a mistake and they're going to taser him which they don't just taser people to taser them. Which, yeah, exactly. So anyway, understand too, you know, Caleb doesn't elope in the night, but you know, he gets absent minded in public and then like he's lost and he won't engage people to let them know that he's lost. And so then it becomes just a cluster bomb. So um, anyway, but we'll talk about that with, in our next segment when we interview our first responders, but thank you guys for joining me. I appreciate it. And that's it for now. If you want to be notified of our next podcast release, be sure to hit subscribe. And just remember, we're all in this together. So find your tribe and hold them tight.